in everyday life and what that looks like for us. Um, as I shared before, Peter and John are preaching the gospel, and it's just Acts 4 and then 5, and uh, they're uh, charged not to do so. They go back, and what do they do? They go back to the church, and they pray to the church to have more boldness, right? Because, as we said before, as they weren't bold by nature, they were chicken by nature, just like we are. And so we need boldness. Um, I know you do, and I know I do. So uh, Mike is going to come and share from the Word on some of that stuff. I hope you don't have Acts 4 and 5, and I just took everything you are about to say, but good. Um, but he's going to share from God's Word. Uh, the most powerful tool in the world is the Bible, and we have it. You all have one on your lap. And so we're expected for it to uh, be used on us tonight, and it's going to cut deep into our hearts. It's active. It's living. So, um, Mikey, you can come on up. Am I on? Can you hear me? Sounds like it's going to break. Um. Thank you for the opportunity to, to share this evening and, and tomorrow also. <clears throat> it is a great honor to, to be here. Um, my wife, Amy, is over here. And um, we have six kids that are, I think, spread out. Or Actually, I don't see any of them. Let's see. <laughs> oh, there's the baby. Oh, there's a couple. Okay. <clears throat> but uh, the Lord's blessed us with a really neat family. And uh, we have been living in Peru for the last 16 years, working as, as missionaries there um, in the jungles of Peru. And you saw, I guess, some of, some of that in, in the video there. And uh, we would just appreciate it if you would pray for us. Um, the Lord's really op- uh, opened up a lot of opportunities for us to uh, be able to preach the gospel in Peru and, and plant churches and start uh, Bible schools and just trying to make Christ's name great. Uh, where the Lord has put us. And so we would ask that you continue to pray for us, that the Lord would help us do that, even while we're here in the States uh, for a few months. Anyway, that's uh, a little bit of an introduction. Now to your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 17. You all know this story very well. David and Goliath. Um, Really... Now, I might have to cough a couple of times. I'm battling this cough. So hopefully I'll try not to cough into the microphone and uh, scare all of you. But um, one thing that is very dear to my heart, one subject, I guess, is uh, biblical manhood. It is so necessary. And there just aren't very many manly men nowadays. And... It is a real need. And so I want to look at this passage, First, First Samuel chapter 17. Take a look at, at David and look at this guy and how he was a man. A man of God. And he was a man willing to fight the Lord's battles. He was willing to fight the giant when all the other men around were running away. Everyone was scared to fight in the Lord's battles except for this kid. Little kid almost. He's like he's probably a teenager. David, the man. Um, if we want to fix society, we need to fix the church. Even the evangelical church, by and large, it's become a big joke in a lot of places. We no longer even preach the Bible. Um, if we want to fix the church, we need to fix the family. If we're going to fix the family we got to fix the men. The men. So all of you women could just go to sleep. I'm just going to talk to the men this evening. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Oh, I'm getting treats already. I really want to put this in my mouth, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk properly. I'll just save that for later. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm just going to read the whole chapter. i got the New King James Version. It says this. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belonged to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Eska in Ephes Damim. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. It's interesting, this, this battle, this duel between David and Goliath takes place in a valley. Beating your giants when you're in a valley. Okay, let's just keep going. Verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Some say that's probably about ten feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Verse 8. Then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel, and he said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you, the servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that he or that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the third oldest, the third, and the three oldest followed Saul. David occasionally went and he returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and he presented himself forty days or forty. Forty days, morning and evening. Verse 17. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousands, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning. He left the sheep with the keeper and he took the things that Je- and, and he went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army and gathered and greeted his brothers. Then he talked with them. As he talked with him, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same, these same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab His oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and your insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. 
And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him, or he turned from him toward another, and he said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And David said to Saul, oh, no, no, and Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a, and took a lamb out of its flock, out of the flock, I went after it, and I struck it, and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword on his armor, and he tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and he saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come with, you come with me, or to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin. Sorry, I'm feeling kind of sick. <clears throat> Sorry. I just feel like I'm going to faint. an illustration <laughs> I'm very sorry about that that was extremely embarrassing I don't even know you guys and I just fainted in front of you almost no I'm coming down to something and I've, I've been battling this for a couple of days I think I'm getting I don't know if it's a flu or something but uh, anyway as I was reading I was getting hotter and hotter and I was thinking I just got to make it to the end of the passage and then I can sit down but um, now I feel better but let me just okay I'm going to Try to go rather quickly through my material and uh, um, not not preach everything that I was going to say, but uh, I really want to just try to say some of this stuff. So um, um, let's see here. I guess I'll just I'll pick up where I was uh, where I left off. I think I left off with the spear and the javelin um, in verse forty-five, right at the. I, I kind of broke off at the the main point. Or David says, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air 
and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. So it was, when the Philistine arose, and he came and he drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand into his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine, and he killed him. With his, But there was no sword in David's hand. Therefore David ran, and he stood over the Philistine, took his sword, he drew it out of his sheath, and he killed him. And he cut off his head with it, and when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and they shouted and they per- pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharaim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire, whose son is this young man? Then, as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So in this story, everyone opposes David. Everyone opposes him almost. I mean, his brothers oppose him. The king opposes him. The Philistines oppose him. Goliath opposes him. Everybody's against him. But you see, David is bold in his God. He's courageous, knowing in whom he has placed his faith. Knowing that God is with him. And if God is with me, who can be against me? Jeremiah talks about God being with him like a dread champion. I mean, if there's a dread champion at your side, whom shall I fear? I'm going in. I'm going to fight Goliath. I'm taking on the giants. Um, I want to just touch on, I guess, three phrases. In verse 17, no, no, verse 10, these are the words of Goliath. And Goliath cries out. He says, I defy the armies of, the, the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Can you imagine this, this giant, 10 feet tall, and he's crying out in his deep, giant-like voice out to all the armies of Israel across the valley to the other side, and he's yelling, Give me a man! Give me a man! Give me a man! And he yells this, and he cries out, asking for a man to come and fight with him. And of course, there's... there's Tens of thousands of Israelites there, soldiers, probably males, but uh, not a single man comes forward to fight the Lord's battles. Forty days and forty nights. I mean, that's a long time. More than a month, every morning and every night, the giant comes out, Give me a man! Give me a man! Give me a man! I'm not very manly this evening. I've already fainted and I might die of coughing. But uh, I think we can ask the same question today as maybe you could have asked after 40 days and 40 nights being like, where are the men? Where are the men in Israel? This was a major problem at this time. And it's a major problem today. Where are the men? Men that are willing to fight the Lord's battles. Men that love their wives. Men that are good husbands, good fathers, 
good employees. Where are the men? Evangelists, preachers and teachers, men that are willing to go to the world with the gospel, even though the world rejects the gospel. Where are the men that are willing to stand up and claim the one who claimed them? Where are the men? Men that can take down giants. Listen to this. Here's a quote about biblical manhood. And this is a quote by Elizabeth Elliot. A woman gives like the greatest quote on manliness that I've ever heard. The strength of manly character is forged in the fires of self-control and discipline. The strength of manly character is forged in the fires of self-control and discipline. I mean, self-control. That's, that's a huge thing. If men could just control themselves. For the world, it seems like the manliest man is, is the guy that can control everyone else. Or maybe... You know, he's tougher than the next guy, or he's got more women than the next guy, or he can drink more than the next guy, but it's the guy that can control everyone else. But really, biblical manhood is the man that can control himself. That's a lot harder to do. Control myself. My fallen sin nature that's still there, even though I'm born again, now I've got two natures. A new, a new nature, born again, but that sinful nature is still there. And it's a daily battle within The strength of manly character is forged in the fires of self-control and discipline. All these tens of thousands of soldiers hearing the call of Goliath, Give me a man. Give me a man. Give me a man. And nobody went out and said, You're bigger than me, but I'm a man. And I'm here to fight the Lord's battles. You've defied The armies of the living God. No one responded. Biblical manhood is almost non-existent today. We have the same problem today. Um, Later on it says that David was a man after God's own heart. That is, that's a great description. (laughs) To be called by God a man after God's own heart. Wow. Wow. I really would love it if God would say that about me. Um, In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, it talks about David. And uh, it says that David served his generation well. That's an incredible statement also. I mean, that's a good epitaph. Have on your gravestone. He served his generation well. You can't do anything about the past generation. You sort of can do something about the future generation because you're going to impact it. Serve your generation. This generation of Christians, someone said, I can't remember who it was, this generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls. God's sovereign, He's in control, but at the same time, He uses His people. This generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls. What are you doing to have an impact? On your generation. David. This, this guy, David, that comes up to fight the Lord's battles against Goliath. He served his generation well. That's the Holy Spirit's commentary on David's life in the book of Acts. Um, this guy, he was just a shepherd. He was just a kid. But he was a giant killer. He was a giant killer. As Christians... We're facing giants every day. I mean, the giant of the homosexual agenda. The giant of Islam. The giant of racism. The giant of pornography. There's a lot of giants. There are Philistines everywhere. The Philistines haven't been exterminated. There's more Philistines today than ever. And that, that, I mean, I just mentioned, you know, some, I guess, big issues of the day. The giant of abortion, another one. But then the, the personal giants that each one of us face. My fallen sin nature. The different temptations that you deal with. 
every day. Just attitudes. I have such a problem with my attitude oftentimes. Uh, so easily, the devil just plants these bad attitudes in my head and I act on it. But I always say this, but I think it's, I think it's such an important statement. It's, it's not a Bible verse, but it's biblical. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It all starts with the thoughts. The battlefield is in the mind. You're fighting Philistines right here. If you could only, if you could just control your mind, control your thoughts. Good thoughts, good destiny. Bad thoughts, bad destiny. It, it, It just goes right down the process. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Um, we're facing Philistines on every side. So many men that aren't able to control themselves. Like little wimps. They give in to the slightest temptation or they faint after just a, a little woozy spell. <clears throat> Um, verses 55 and 56 here in this chapter 17. Saul asks, who is this guy? <laughs> who is this guy? I mean, there just aren't men like you. I mean, you're, you're just a teenager, but guys like you are few and far between. Who are you? Who's your dad? Where are you from? Did your dad teach you to do that? From the pasture to the palace. From a lowly shepherd to a giant slayer. From a no-namer to a rock star. He was famous after that moment. Maybe the headline in the newspaper said, Rancher's son is the savior of Israel. I want to repeat the words of Goliath. Give me a man. Give me a man. Give me a man. That's the call. Let that call. I just want it to ring in our ears. I want it to ring in my ears. Give me a man. Another thing that I want to touch on here is in verse 29. David's talking to his brother and he says, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? And I understand in different translations, different things are said here. Um... In several of the translations, it comes out saying, is there not a cause? And I think as you look at the context, that's the idea. Is there not a cause? David's kind of like, isn't isn't there a cause here? The cause of our great God. Making His name great among the nations. I mean, God chose us as Israel so that the nations might see us and say, wow, what other nation is there that has laws like theirs? What other nation is there that has a God like theirs that leads them? What other nation is there that has a God that that protects them and that they obey faithfully? What other nation is there? I mean, this guy has just defied the armies of the living God. Look at, um, in this story, God's name is being mocked. It makes David's blood boil. In verse 26, David is speaking, he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He says this again in verse 36. That was 26. In verse 36, he says, Your servant, he's talking to Saul, has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Once again, it's like David's really upset that this giant has defied the armies of the living God. He says it twice. And then he says it again in verse 45. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And this time he's talking to Goliath himself. And he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He says it three times. It's like David is really upset. Just makes my blood boil. You are defying the armies of the living God? I mean, you guys follow Dagon. He's an idol. And later there's this funny story about they captured the ark and they put the ark. They think, well, let's be religious and we'll put the ark in front of, you know, Dagon, our God. And in the morning, Dagon is face down 
in front of the ark, almost as if he's worshiping the true and living God. But David's really upset. You think you can defy the armies of the living God? No, no, no. Maybe everyone else is going to let you get away with this, but I'm not going to let you get away with it. Our God is not mocked. Our whole goal in life ought to be to make the world say, He has a big God. Is there not a cause? Yes, there is. There's a tremendous cause. You ought to give your life for this cause. Put everything on the line for this cause. Your abilities. Your money. Everything that you have. Everything that you are. Put it on the line for this cause. The cause is make Christ's name great among the nations. Now, I am all about evangelism and and I want to preach and and share the gospel with people one-on-one. Preach open air if I can. I want to do that and I want to see converts. But that's not my number one goal in evangelism or in preaching or in open air preaching. My number one goal is not to see converts. I would love to see that. That's probably secondary. That's in second place. My number one goal, though, in evangelism is I want this person that I'm speaking with to know that I've got a big God. I've got a great God. He's the God of gods. The Lord of lords. No one compares to Him. He's the only true and living God. This is our cause. My God is great. And we want our God to be seen as great wherever we go. So whatever you do, people should look at you and say, they should look at your marriage and they should say, wow, that guy has got a big God. I can tell. Look at the way he treats his wife. Look at the way he treats his kids. The way you watch TV or what you watch on TV should scream, I've got a great God. What you look at on the internet should scream, I've got a great God. The way you spend your money should scream, I've got a great God. Everything you do should scream. The way you dress should scream, I've got a great God. Is there not a cause? Yes, there is. We've got the greatest of all causes to glorify our great God. In this story, Goliath and the Philistines were mocking the God of Israel. And it's almost like David takes this personal as his personal mission. You've defied the armies of the living God. I'm not going to let that happen. My mission is to defend God's honor. Of course, God defends his own honor. He doesn't need you. But at the same time, he uses his people. And God, sure, is looking for just a few good men that are jealous for God's honor. Risk is right. This is something that I often think about. And I say, and it, it really comes up in a lot of the Bible as you're reading through the Bible. Risk is right. You, you see it all through the Bible. Great men and women of God, men and women of faith, they took risks. Risk is right. Um, here in the United States, it's amazing. It's shocking when you come from the third world When you come to the United States, everything is safe. There are rules for everything. Just, it's like, uh, I just, in traffic, you know, we're going bumper to bumper, and the whole shoulder on the right hand side or the left hand side is wide open. You could just like pass everybody. You're not supposed to do that, though. They say it's unsafe. But in Lima, you can do that. But uh, risk, when we're talking about the gospel, When we're talking about this great cause, is there not a cause? When we're talking about our great God and His glory, we ought to be willing to take risks. Israel had just gone through 40 days of nothing but fear. David came onto the scene and he thought, I'm going to take a risk. This is a risk worth taking. I'm not letting the fear factor paralyze me from fighting in the Lord's battles. I'm getting out of my comfort zone. Out of the safety zone. And that's, that's a tough thing to do. I, I'm somebody that I like to be in my comfort zone. 
But I need somebody sometimes to push me out of my comfort zone, to, to go for it. Um, I remember the very first time I opened a priest in Peru, um, uh, English brother was uh, a missionary in, in the mountains of Peru. We had just arrived in Peru a few months before. This is 16 years ago. And I had really never ever preached before. And I just wanted to preach the gospel. I really wanted to preach open air. And, and he used to do it. And, and he was teaching me how to preach. And, um, and he took me out into the main square. Or no, it was the market. And there was just thousands of people in the market. And he had this like man purse thing. And he was manly, but he had a purse. Uh, but uh, he had this man purse, and he put it down. He just, we're going through, we're walking through the, the, the market. And he didn't tell us what we were going to do. There's a couple of us that went with him. And he took the man purse, and he put it down on the ground, and he started to pull the, the correa strap. He started to pull the strap and move the bag around. And he started yelling, Está vivo! Está vivo! It's alive! It's alive! And every, I mean, this crowd just gathered around, and everybody was like, "What is going on?" And he was moving; he was pulling the strap, and he's moving the bag. And everybody thought, "Well, there's something that's alive in there." But then they could tell he was pulling the strap, and they were like, this guy's weird. And uh, <laughs> anyway, finally, he, he gets up close to the bag, and he and he opens it up, and he pulls out his Bible, and he yells, "It's alive!" It's alive, the Bible, the Word of God is alive. And everybody is laughing, but this huge crowd gathered around, and he preaches this incredible, he just rained down Bible verses on him. And it was incredible, everybody was just like shocked. And then he turns, turns to me and he says, or he says to everybody, uh, now I've got this uh, American missionary that uh, he's going to get up and he's going to share, the, uh, share his testimony. And he pushes me forward. I was like, I had never preached before. He was teaching me, but I was so horrified. Uh, I, I mean, it's amazing that I didn't faint then. Says it's now. <laughs> but uh, it was a disaster. It was a total disaster. But I needed that. I needed somebody to push me. I needed somebody to push me. And I have no idea why I just said that. Um, oh, something about risk is right. I need somebody to push me out of my safety, comfort zone, safety zone. And this, this idea of, of David taking a risk he gets out of his comfort zone, out of the safety zone. Uh, I might have to do this alone. Nobody's going to follow me. But if God is with me, who can be against me? If God is with me, who can be against me? William Carey, the father of modern missions, a missionary to, to India, he said this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. We ought to expect God's going to take Goliath down. I don't know how this is going to work. I'm pretty good with the slingshot, but that guy's really big. But I'm going to expect great things from God and I'm going to attempt great things for God. Characteristics of a conqueror. One of the characteristics of a conqueror is that he's willing to take risks. This is kind of how a martyr thinks. I'm an alien on this planet. I'm a stranger in this world. I'm a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. I'm here for a very short amount of time in comparison to eternity. Life goes by just like that. I mean, it's really, really fast. Like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away, James says. I'm here for such a short amount of time. Martyr thinks this way. I'm on my way to the celestial city. If they kill me, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Eternal perspective. John Jonathan Edwards is the one that said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. It's a great, great statement. Good way to say it. An eternal perspective. That is the thing that I was an electrician in Portland, Oregon. We're from Portland, Oregon. I was an electrician. Amy and I were married. We were married really young, 19. And uh, I remember... After I had my electrical license, we bought a house, had a couple cars. I remember sitting on the back deck of our house, having a barbecue, and just thinking, I'm going to be on my deathbed someday. Maybe I'll be 90. Maybe I'll be 60. 
I don't know. I don't know when it's going to be. But I do not want to look back over my life and think, I wasted it. I just lived for me. I've got to be willing to take some risks. This life is so short in comparison to eternity. I just got this, this great vision. No, not, not that you guys already think I'm Pentecostal. But uh, it just really hit me like a ton of bricks. Eternity is really long. Eternal perspective. Right now is game time. Right now is battle time. Where we can fight Goliath. Take on the Philistines. Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I love how that chapter ends. Uh, um, the writer of Hebrews, he, he, he comes to this, the end and he's talking about man after man after, and then different women who lived by faith and they did these great things. And he says, for what, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, of Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Quench the violence of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others received, and it goes on and on and on. And he, ooh, it, I mean, it just talks about these men and women who live by faith, and some of them conquered, and others suffered, but they did these great things all by faith, trusting in their great God. Listen, here's a list of some of the martyrs of the early church, the primitive church. And, I, and I'm trying to say all this under this idea of, is there not a cause? There's a great cause. The cause of defending our God's glory. To make God great. Look great. As, as if we could make Him look greater than He is. He can't. But we want the nations to see His greatness. At least a glimpse of it. Is there not a cause? David says this. And then you think about all these men and women down through history who took risks for our great God to make His name great among the nations. Listen to this, how some of the, the martyrs of the primitive church, how some of these guys died. Philip, in A.D. 54, was crucified. In A.D. 60, Matthew was beheaded. A.D. 64, Barnabas burned at the stake. A.D. 64, Mark was dragged to death behind a horse. A.D. 66, James was clubbed to death. A.D. 66, Paul was beheaded. A.D. 69, Peter was crucified upside down. Can you imagine upside down? I mean, you're, when you're crucified, you, you can't hardly breathe. You're trying to breathe, gasping for air. <gasps> and all the pressure of the blood in his body running to his head. I mean, your head would almost explode from the pressure. Horrible deaths that these guys were willing to suffer. Because they believed that Jesus had died and risen again. And they were willing to proclaim His greatness. Whether, they, whether it meant that they were going to take their lives or not. Unbelievable what these guys were willing to suffer. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Luke was hanged. John, after writing the, uh, the book of Revelation a few years later on the island of Patmos, they say that some of the natives there boiled him in petroleum. Oil, not but petrol. You know what I'm talking about. Oil. It's a better word for oil. Yeah. <laughs> not like cooking oil, you know. But unbelievable what these guys were willing to suffer and how they were willing to die for this great cause. Is there not a cause? Yes, there is. The last thing that I want to touch on here is in verse 46, right there, David is talking to Goliath. And he says at the end of verse 46, that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel. So this is tied really closely to this first, the, first, the, the, the previous point there. Is there not a cause? And then this point, is there not a God? Is there not a God? Yes, there is. I mean... <clears throat> More and more, especially in the United States, Europe, 
uh, atheism everywhere. And you share the gospel with people and a lot of people are agnostics or, or, or atheists. Is there not a God? It's like David states his goal here in verse 45. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to cut your head off. This is kind of a gruesome passage for, I mean, it's funny that this is oftentimes the, the, the main story that uh, is told in, in children's uh, Sunday school or something. It's uh, it's pretty gruesome here. I was kind of thinking that maybe I should skip over some of the gruesome stuff that he's, as he cuts his head off and he's holding his head. And he comes before Saul. Unbelievable. But uh, David states his goal to Goliath. Basically, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to cut your head off so that all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. Um, is there a God in Israel? Does God really exist? I mean, putting all religiosity aside, religion aside... Is there really an all-powerful God, creator of the universe? And I, I mean, there's so much evidence, just out, even outside of the Bible, that screams, yes, there is. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible quality, qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew Him, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. In Romans it talks about even atheists, they, they didn't give thanks to Him and they, they, they tried to block Him out of their mind, although they knew Him. Next time you talk to an atheist, you say, atheists don't really exist. God doesn't b- believe in atheists. They knew Him. Creation screams, God exists. Is there not a God? Yes, there is. There is a God. There's one true God. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He's transcendent. He's a triune God. One God revealed in three persons. Equal in essence, but different in role and function. This God has revealed Himself to us here on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of Jesse, the Son of David. Is there not a God? Yes, there is. And this whole story, actually, it it presents a type of the gospel. I mean, David is a type of Jesus. Goliath is a type of the devil. Here we have the drama of salvation. David and Goliath and the gospel. That should be the title, really, uh, in your Bible as you read at the top of chapter 17. David and Goliath and the gospel. David was the shepherd of his father's sheep. David went about his father's business, just like Jesus. David was sent by his father, just like Jesus. David's brothers rejected him, just like Jesus. God, God's champion beats the devil's champion. David became the champion and the king, just as Jesus became the champion and the king. God's champion won the battle. Therefore, we need not cower in fear. As soon as David took off the Philistine's head, all of a sudden, those tens of thousands of soldiers, none of them was manly enough to stand up. All of a sudden, they weren't cowering in fear. All of them went after the Philistines. Once Jesus triumphed on the cross, we have no need to fear. No need to cower in fear. Jesus is the real giant killer. Jesus is on every page of Scripture. Jesus is the main point of every book of the Bible. Now, is there not a God? Yes, there is. 95% of the world does not know Him. We've got a mission. Our mission is to make Christ's name great among the nations. 
Defend His honor and His glory. Let people know that there is a God. There is a cause. And there is a man. Will you be that man? I, I told the women you could sleep. So, you... Is there not a man? Give me a man. Give me a man. Goliath said it. Can you, I mean, hear it in his, I don't know how, how the giant voice would be. Give me a man. Give me a man. We have a mission. A mission is set before us that the world might know that there is a God. And He's my God. Proclaim Him. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Preach the gospel. Preach Christ. Preach Him. That's your mission. John Ritchie, kind of a, a famous brother and preacher many years ago, said this, No happier, no nobler work exists on earth in which the energies of youth and the best and brightest years of life may be occupied for God than in going forth with the gospel message. Heaven's last and costliest gift to men seeking to win them to the Savior, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. No happier, no nobler work exists than that. Saving people, snatching them out of darkness, transferring them over to the kingdom of light. And I'm not saying that you all have to go on the mission field or, or go into full-time work or anything like that. Do it right where you are. Where are the men? Men. They're giant slayers. Men, they're jealous for God's glory. There is a cause. There is a God. But is there a man? Men, from their workplace, from their neighborhoods, in their households, making God's name great. Um, one last thing I want to point out here is this. When David was faced with a giant problem, he reacted abnormally. He did not act the way that most people act. I mean, we see that tens of thousands of soldiers, everyone was cowering in fear. No one reacted the way David did. Look, he ran toward the problem instead of away from it. It says that in the chapter about David three times. It says he ran, he ran, he ran. It's always toward the problem. Look at this. Um, verse 22. It says, David ran to the ranks and he went and greeted his brothers. So he runs to the ranks, he greets his brothers. In verse 48, it says, David ran quickly toward the battle line. That, that, that is something that I never noticed before. This is when he's, he's facing Goliath. Goliath's already yelled at him and everything and they kind of yeah, yelled back and forth at each other and then all of a sudden it comes to the, that moment when they're going to they're gonna fight. Here comes the clash. And it says, David ran. Ran toward the Philistines. I like I always kind of thought that David kind of hid behind a tree and ran up to the next tree, kind of hid behind that one and darted over to another rock and, you know, getting his sling ready from behind a... But he runs. He runs to it. And then it says after he, he, he slays the, 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 the giant, in verse 51, David ran and he stood over the Philistine. David was... He's abnormal. It's not normal to act this way. Well, what was his spiritual secret? What made him act like this? I would say faith. Faith is actually the same word. Faith and trust is the same word in Greek. Pistis. Faith. He trusted in his God. He put all of his trust in God. David seems to be almost eager to take this risk, and it's because faith. Faith was his natural reflex. Usually fear is my natural reflex. But the closer you get to God, the more you trust in him, and you see his greatness, the more you trust him, and then natural reflex is faith. Um... Do you face your giants with fear or with faith? Faith 
changes everything. And I, I really want to use that interchangeably with the word trust, because I think a lot of times we get, like, people get these weird ideas about what faith is. It's trust. Trusting in God. Um, it changes everything. I want to explain faith with this illustration real quick and end there before I faint again. True faith involves three components. Maybe some of the theologians here can afterwards correct me if I'm wrong. I think, I think this is a good explanation of faith. Three components to faith. First of all, emotion is involved in faith. Intelligence or information is involved in faith. And then will, your will. Um, emotion. But just, just thinking of, of faith. Faith as far as salvation goes. Emotion. I, I want it. I hear that Jesus saves from sin. He can save me from the hell that I deserve. He saves me from the wrath of God the Father. I want it. It's emotion. Starts there. But that doesn't save you. You've got to have information. Information. Doctrine. Bible. What does the Bible say about who God is? Who Jesus is? Where we come from? Where are we going? You need to have sana doctrina. Healthy doctrine. Doesn't sound right in English. Information. And then will. You've got to exercise your will. You've got to actually put your life into Jesus' hands. Now let me illustrate it as far as like a, a parachute. Have you jumped from an airplane before? Parachute? You've hung, one, hung from one? Oh, really? Like practice? Oh, okay. So uh, maybe somebody else here has, has jumped, jumped from an airplane with a parachute. I haven't. But, uh, um, so if you're going to jump from an airplane with a parachute, first of all, you've got to want to do it. You're not going to do it if you don't want to do it. The emotion. I want to do this. This is going to be awesome. Get up in the airplane, open up the door. And <laughs> I'm excited. I mean, emotion. That's part of it. After that, you need information. You need to know how to put the thing on properly. Which, which of these things I pull when I'm fall, falling through the sky and everything, if I don't know what to pull and how to release the parachute, I'm in trouble. You need information. It goes in here. If you don't got information, you're in big trouble. And then you need the will. You might have the emotion, but then you get up, you put the whole thing on, they teach you how you got the information, and then they open up the door and you look out. I'm, I'm, I still got the emotion, but I just can't make my feet. I can't, I can't, I don't really, I'm not willing to do it. Take that step. David joins all three of these things. He wants to make Christ's name great. There's a cause, and he knows it. Is there not a cause? Yes, there is. This is the greatest cause in the universe. I'm willing to take great risks for it. Then after that, information. He had the information that he'd grown up with, how great his God was. Is there not a God? Yes, there is. All of creation screams there's a God. All of Israel's history screams there is a God. I grew up hearing in the synagogue all about this God. He had the right information. And then, exercising his will. That's where the manliness comes in. Be brave. Be courageous. To stand up. Fight in the Lord's battles. Take that step of faith. Trusting in God. All I've got is a slingshot. But I've got God at my side. I trust in Him. Faith. Faith. That's the game changer. Faith changes everything. That was David's spiritual secret. Get close to God. Your faith will grow. And He'll do great things with you and in you and through you. Give me a man. Give me a man. Give me a man. There's a great cause. There's a great God. 
That call goes out even today for men to stand up and fight in the Lord's battles. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. For Samuel 17. So many things to to learn from it. So many things that are just left out. God, such a great cause. You've put us here on this earth for such a short amount of time. Help us to serve this generation well. Help us to be jealous for your glory. Pray that everything that we do and the way that we do it would scream to the world around, our God is great. There is a cause. There is a God. Help us to step up to the plate, Lord. And be that man. Be that woman. That's willing to fight in your battles. God, we're surrounded with Philistines. Giants everywhere. But we thank you. There's a small remnant followers of Jesus Christ throughout the world. Help us to be willing to take risks, fight in your battles, make your name great. Thank you for making us your soldiers. Now we pray that by faith you would do great things through us because faith changes everything. We trust in you put our lives into your hands, asking that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.